Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And today we'll talk about one of my favorite topics, and also Peter's, sports and politics, with one of our favorite guests, Nick Sprague. So last year we talked about sport washing, a word that was new and unfamiliar for most, but now has become a catchphrase to describe the efforts by governments largely, but also others in power, and their intention to clean their image through sport. The world was relevant in the past Olympics, golf tournaments, even the NBA. So today, underslept, excited after days watching dozens of hours of World Cup soccer matches at ungodly hours, we will tackle the controversies, motivations, tensions, and surprises of the championship in Qatar. So, Muni, I, I just want to say personally that I'm just so thrilled to spend a month in complete thrall with football. Uh, it's basically I'm reading about football, I'm talking about football, analyzing football, speculating on the games, the teams, the standings, betting with friends, annoying my work colleagues, because in the middle of the game, I simply stop doing anything else and just and just start watching the games. It reminds me a lot of my father, and that makes me happy too, because football trumps everything else, at least until December 18th. But it's it's so true what you say about politics, and it's been present, you know, ever since the Roman Colosseum was built two thousand years ago, and in the World Cup in particular, there have been tense moments like the one between France and Italy as far back as in nineteen thirty eight, where Mussolini, watching from the stadium in Marseille, had warned his players to either win or die. It reminds you of Iran, right? And they responded with a victory and a fascist salute, and then there was this. Argentina-England match shortly after the Falklands War. We've seen boycotts from all of Africa, and at this time, the boycott of the Russian team. The big political story out of the last couple of weeks has been Iran, of course, where the oppressed players are caught between the government and the public, and we've heard all about the national anthems and the LGBTQ protests and the threats to their families. To make matters worse, of course, Iran was in the same group as the United States and the United Kingdom, and this too, into itself, created political clouds on each of the match days between those countries. Ah, the beautiful game, soccer, has a reputation for bringing nations together. And we, we saw a kind of misplaced uh, Anthony Blinken referring to this bringing na nations together while surrounded by Qatari officials. So sure, the national anthems and the pageantries are lovely, but what's happening on the pitch is also a reflection of the world's conflicts and the balance of power. And there are very special circumstances this time that make the connection with politics even more obvious. Obviously, the elephant in the room is how and why. How the hell and why Qatar is hosting this championship? As everybody knows, Qatar, as Russia did in 2018, allegedly bribed FIFA officials to secure a spot for 2022. So the oil and gas tycoons in the Gulf bought themselves a seat at the table with no culture of soccer at all. But to be fair, they wouldn't have been successful if they hadn't profited from the greed of the West. So nobody's innocent here, except, except maybe also maybe, the players. So let's hear from Taya about the human rights and the LGBTQ issues surrounding this uh, World Cup and how they are a reflection of this shift. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovic, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And is there a lot to talk about for this episode? 
Qatar's anti-LGBTQ policies have really become a flashpoint in this overall controversial World Cup tournament. And, you know, between national teams facing punishment for wearing the rainbow one love armbands, international fans being told they can't wear rainbow shirts or hats, and the Qatari minister's anti-LGBTQ comments, queer rights in Qatar are really one of the biggest controversies that are on and off the pitch in this tournament. So early on, a protester disrupted a match between Uruguay and Portugal. He ran on the pitch waving a rainbow flag, reading peace and wearing a Superman t-shirt with messages of support for Ukraine, the women protesting in Iran. And following the stunt, the Qatari Supreme Committee banned him from the remainder of the matches, revoked his permit to stay in the country. And so perhaps the most visible sign of the struggle emerged over FIFA's decision to punish players wearing one love armbands in support of LGBTQ rights. And seven European teams alerted FIFA to their plans to have their captains wear the armbands back in September, and FIFA didn't hand down its decision to give yellow cards to players until just a few hours before England, which is one of the teams that was planning the protest, took the pitch. So, you know, there have been reports of people being detained for wearing these rainbow flags. Uh, also, shirts with the words Women, Life, Freedom, which is the slogan of the protests in Iran. So, you know, lots to talk about there. So this is my take. The world is becoming increasingly political. There's no doubt about that. We talk about it a lot in this podcast, too, and people really want to express their political and social values, and sports is not an exception. The desire to wear values on your sleeves, sometimes literally, like in this World Cup, is just going to increase. And organizations, especially those like FIFA, which have millions of eyeballs glued to their screens watching every move, should be prepared. As always, I want to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altimer Podcast. Thanks, Taya. I look, I, I agree. FIFA's got some gall. It lined its pockets with the decision to allow Qatar to host the game. So why can't the players express what they feel? Uh, it's crazy. And the thing feels often so corrupt and heavy handed. And indeed, we've spoken in previous episodes about how China and the Middle East are investing in soccer and other sports as a nation building tool. And from buying venues, hosting championships, buying soccer teams, Newcastle, Manchester City, PSG in France, and the list goes on and on. Their cash has flexed the power of their muscles and, and in the process has turned the, the Middle East into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. The trend could also serve as a symbol of the shift of the epicenter of global power from the West and Western Europe and the, and the U.S. to the Arab world and China. And this phenomenon is everywhere in sports, from the Olympics to cricket in India. This leaves the sponsors, the players, and especially the fans with the ethical dilemma of either looking away and fighting back or simply just uh, buying into the system and uh, enjoying themselves, which, um, you know, I got to say is what I'm doing. So, look, let's add Nick 
into the conversation. Nick Sprague, Nick Sprague is a sports and technology entrepreneur who is just returning from the World Cup after working with several national teams and individual players, including the Uruguayan national team. Nick serves as the chairman of the board of Love Football, a global NGO dedicated to giving all children a safe space to play. He's also the author of a sports and society documentary film, The Two Escobars. He's a lawyer turned sports investor, sports analyst, and is always so knowledgeable about where sports is going. Nick Sprague, welcome back to Altamar once again. Good to be home, Peter and Mooney and Taya and team. So you were there. We've been watching this from afar on TV. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm just dying to know the, just the atmospherics. How did it feel? Yeah. How were the stadiums? How were the fans? How was the transportation between stadiums? How's the organization? Did you manage to find a beer? <laughs> all, all that and more. Um, I think there were two things that I'll, I'll mention here in our, in our time-constrained format that made this tournament very different from past events. I think the first thing, probably on the negative side for the hosts, is that there just wasn't that many people that traveled in for it. I actually left Doha yesterday and the airport was empty. Uh, in general, the city felt a little bit business as usual. Um, certainly traffic wasn't any busier than Doha normally is. And it looks like about four to 500,000 fans traveled in, which is well short of the 2 million fans that the tournament was hoping to attract. And I think for Qatar, this tournament was never about the money, nor was it about achieving a financial return on investment. It was always about putting the country on the map and brand building. And I think one of the key components of their strategy was getting as many people to visit as possible. And I think that they will look back and lament really a tactical error that was made, which was there was price gouging on airfare and lodging at the last minute. And this is the pragmatic reason that most fans didn't come. It was just too damn expensive. And I think that really cut against the whole idea of subsidizing event in excess of $200 billion to get as many people to come as possible. It just didn't make any sense to make it so expensive to actually do it in the end. And I think that will be a little bit of regret that the hosts have in hindsight. Um, the second thing, which is probably more positive uh, for Qatar, uh, that's been really different about this tournament, is it's been the World Cup of South Asia. And the overwhelming majority of the fans in the stadiums, with the exception of Mexico, Argentina, and Saudi, uh, have been South Asians, most of whom live in Qatar and are part of the local workforce, many of whom who are relative novices to the sport and were having their first experience with the World Cup. So when you're asking about things like stadium atmosphere, of course, if you're replacing what is usually diehard partisans with kind of neutral novices, uh, that definitely has an impact on things like atmosphere and experience. But I think this will be a legacy of the tournament that the hosts will be quite proud of. And I think it will be a talking point for FIFA about the number of non-traditional fans that got to experience the tournament uh, for the first time as a result of having played it in a unique place like Qatar. 
So now that we've gotten the pleasantries over with, let's get let's jump into <laughs> the unpleasantries. <laughs> you know, look, you know, much as this World Cup to the television viewer, like like uh, we who didn't go, seems normal. But this World Cup isn't normal. It's in it's in November, where all other World Cups have been in the summer. It's in one city only, as opposed to one, you know, a country. It's in a country with a tiny population and the infrastructure built by immigrant workers. H- how did we get here, Nick? What what happened between Qatar and FIFA over a decade ago to lead us to this controversial venue? And and clearly, FIFA hasn't done itself any, you know, or I would say actually, they've done themselves some considerable reputational damage with the decision to host in Qatar because there isn't a person I watch with that didn't boo whenever they showed Gianni Infantino, the head of FIFA, on TV. I mean, in my living room, they were, ah, you know, the corrupt, that corrupt guy. I mean, how does FIFA come out of this looking better? I think what's so interesting about it, Peter, is that almost everyone who was involved with awarding this tournament to Qatar over a decade ago is no longer around. Even in Qatar, it was the current emir's father that pushed this tournament, not him. And so when you have a circumstance where there's such a large turnover in stakeholders, right, that has taken place from the beginning now to the end, there would have been obvious opportunities created for a change, you know, in policy and obviously in politics. But it's noteworthy to me that the show has gone on. And that tells me that the decision to play this tournament in Qatar is a bit more institutionalized than kind of the transactional things um, that have always come up when discussing uh, the the tournament's kind of origin and awarding. Uh, You know, obviously much has been written about influence peddling and bribery and conflicts of interest and, and the geopolitics of it. But I think that fundamentally how we got here, uh, despite the transactional stuff, is that this is the first time the Middle East has hosted a World Cup. And once that decision was made, I think it was very tricky for any of these litany of new stakeholders that have stepped in to change that, uh, despite the reputational damage that many have suffered as a result of it. And I think similar to when South Africa hosted in 2010, the objective of bringing the world's biggest event to a region of the globe that's never experienced it before was too big for any of the other concerns and costs, reputational or otherwise, to overcome. And I think that's how we ended up with a Winter World Cup for the Northern Hemisphere. So, Nick... We have to confess to our listeners that we as a team, us who are doing this podcast, have a, a, an a actual WhatsApp group called Soccer Politics. And we've discussed this issue, this whole um, mix between actually the world of sport and politics extensively over, you know, year round. But we've also seen right now a huge map in this story where this is the like the ultimate soccer politics uh yeah. you know situation 
there's there's so the, the role of leaders of world leaders of corporations real estate the fifa component that we just talked about the players can you just draw a map as you so well do about the landscape of politics and soccer or you can broaden it to sports today yeah and i i think for sure this this has been the most political of of the world cups in our time and that's made it fascinating but I, I think it comes down to very basic things. And if you take the World Cup today, the World Cup is an event that organically attracts billions of viewers around the world. So I don't have to convince you, Muni, to watch a game. I don't have to. Uh, the, 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 it, it sells itself. The tournament is not competing against other sports and entertainment properties generally. And this is something that makes it very unique. There just aren't that many things out there that can do that. So if you take uh, the different stakeholders, like the corporates, as an example, uh, there were some brands that decided to sit this tournament out because of the noise uh, surrounding it. But overall, it's been record sponsorship revenue for FIFA. So in general, the response has been, this is a massive event that transcends the world, and I want in on it. And I think the media coverage of this tournament has been extremely high, regardless of which angle they're covering it, because that's ultimately what people want to read about and watch about is World Cup-related content. If you take it from the player's perspective, uh, the tournament continues to be a life-altering event. Uh, one example, take Richarlison from Brazil, who in full disclosure is, is a client, but you know, he scored the goal of the tournament thus far and overnight he gained 5 million new followers on social media and now he's been elevated to kind of legendary icon status in Brazil as a result of you know, what he did on a field uh, one night you know, in, in Qatar. So imagine how that's going to alter the trajectory of his life. So I think if you kind of look at these things, there is an alignment of stakeholders across the ecosystem uh, of sports and the World Cup being a, a very good example of it, where increased money and power and influence into sport is in general a good thing. And as we know where we have money and power, the politics will always follow. And so I think right now we continue to have a very strong alignment of, of all of those elements. But then there's also kind of a dark side of this with all the politics and money. It seems like in a way it's overshadowing the sport itself. And we talked about in our previous podcast on this about golf, about basketball. There's like cricket controversies right now in India and in tennis, of course. And is it just going to devolve into some sort of a self-interested industry? Or as we saw, I mean, a little bit less than that, than, than it, probably should have been a backlash from sponsors, a backlash from players and even some some fans. What do you think is going to be the, the kind of the evolution of this trend? Well, we're not there yet. And I, I don't know in general terms when and if we will be there. But I think the backlashes that we'll continue to see are going to be specific. So take 
the Russian oligarchs having to sell their ownership stakes in English Premier League teams in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion and the economic sanctions that were imposed against many Russian individuals as a result. I think that's a clear example where um, you will have occasions where sports will move um, to accommodate uh, the broader societal pressure and a backlash will occur. But it's still narrow and specific to particular things um, because the overall alignment that I was just mentioning of, of money and power and influence uh, is still too valuable for the stakeholders across the board uh, to look the other way. So I think we are going to see an increase in money in politics and sports for the foreseeable future. And I would note that uh, just last week, the NBA announced that they are now allowing uh, sovereign wealth funds to buy stakes in NBA teams for the first time, which is an explicit step in the direction of welcoming more money in politics into sport. And I think that right now you have two of the biggest brands in the world, regardless of sport, in Manchester United and Liverpool that happen to be up for sale. And almost assuredly, the majority of the money that gets put up for those acquisitions is going to be sovereign wealth. And so I do believe, Mooney, we're still in the early days of this convergence of uh, big money, politics and sports. And we will see specific backlashes, but the overall trend is going to continue in the direction that it's headed. So I, I want to <laughs> jump in here and I want to talk about soccer because I'm one of those who uh, you described in your first answer to Mooney, which which was, you know, notwithstanding all the dirty stuff, notwithstanding the politics, notwithstanding the money, the debates, things like that. I'm watching every single game. I haven't missed one. I love it. I love the <laughs> fact that, you know, I don't have to talk about Trump or politics or anything like that. And that for one month, all I talk about is you know, which team, what, what this, you know, which team is going to advance, what's better, what's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So I want you to opine on a fully soccer discussion, which is this, the debate that I had yesterday. So one friend says, you know, all isn't terrible in this World Cup. We've got great stories coming out of it. You know, and one of the stories is the five African teams and their coaches showing the world that they're serious players in the soccer world. And another friend says, yeah, yeah, but in the end, all this excitement about new teams from Africa and the Middle East, it's like all a shooting comment. In the end, Ghana lost badly, Senegal lost badly, and as did the other fun novices like the U.S., Canada, and Australia, and we're ending up with all the usual suspects. Which of my friends is right? <laughs> well, there's uh, your 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 second friend is right, um, and and there is there's a club of eight winners, Peter. Uh, it's it's Brazil, Argentina, France, England, Germany, uh, Spain, Uruguay, and Italy. Right, that's the club. And, and as we uh, know, I'm from Italy, and they're not there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But 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 it's still the club. And it's very hard for new members to join the club. I think one of the fun debates that actually was circulating around kind of my group uh, in the tournament is who could be the next team that would actually be able to join that club. And it's so hard because the depth of the talent pool that the traditional powers bring to the table. 
So even when you see a new country, and you mentioned a few that could produce, you know, an exceptionally talented generation of players who maybe, you know, with 11 really good uh, starters that can be on the field at that level, then you look at Brazil and France's 26-man rosters, and you realize that there's almost no drop-off from player number three on the roster to player number 26. And that's when the reality of this tournament hits you, and you think how hard it is to get through seven games against teams with that kind of depth and to be the last man standing. And fundamentally, it's that depth of the player pool in these countries that makes it so hard for new winners to emerge. Uh, it's probably for a different podcast, this discussion, but uh, the answer to the question of which countries are the most likely to join the Winners Club in the future is actually the United States and the Netherlands. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the frustration with those looking for uh, really neat stories of Cinderella runs uh, is going to continue to be there because the depth of the player pools and the traditional power is really hard to overcome for these teams uh, over the course of a month-long tournament. I have to follow up because I just want to know. I mean, your your um, I, I found the United the United States to be once again f fully what it is always in these World Cups, which is just disappointing. What um, <laughs> you do you disagree with me? But in it. Well, in a different way, though, uh, that it's this tournament marked a before and after for U.S. soccer, and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll tell share this with you as somebody who's been a longtime follower of the game here. The tournament was somewhat shocking because we saw two European blue bloods, the England and the Netherlands, concede possession and control of the game to the U.S. This is unprecedented. For U.S. soccer, the history has always been the opposite. Anytime the U.S. played against a quality opponent, uh, the U.S. packed it in in the back, you know, absorbed all sorts of pressure the whole game, held on for dear life, and then would pray that some counterattack opportunity would spring up and miraculously could win the game despite having been dominated. Uh, and this goes back to actually what I was just talking about, the issue of depth. Um, but what's happened in the U.S. is now you've got this huge professional league in MLS with almost 30 teams. It's been operating for three decades now. And you've got a scouting and development pipeline that's drawing on a massive number of people, 330 million people. And now you see that there's a legitimate means of talent identification and production coming through this huge group of players. Um, not only competing in the U.S., but we've got, you know, the U.S. has 100 plus players playing at very high levels in European clubs, most of whom are relatively young. And that's provided a much deeper player pool for the U.S. men's team to draw from in the past. And we're seeing a transformation in how the U.S. men's team plays and the respect that's being shown to it from other opponents. Even if in the end, as you said, it was business as usual, losing in the round of 16 to a European powerhouse, you know, that's how it usually goes for the U.S. The reality is the way it played out was fundamentally different and quite shocking to me as somebody who's been a longtime observer, where the U.S. is all of a sudden controlling 60% of the possession 
against teams like England and the Netherlands. So Nick, I had two teams in the cup and they both lost Belgium and Serbia in the group phase. So I will refrain from talking about the specifics <laughs> and go back to social justice. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you because, you know, we talked obviously a big part of this podcast, you know, sp money in, in sports and, and how you're saying that's just the beginning. But so my question is, at what point do FIFA and others, like at what point have, do they have to look um, at what's happening, right? At what point do they have, can they stop looking away? I mean, the controversies about LGBTQ rights were obviously huge in Qatar from, you know, the one love um, armbands to people being detained for wearing rainbow hats. Qatar has really cracked down on anyone supporting the queer community. So what has been the result for, well, mm -hmm. the gay community and then in general, the discussion around it? Well, I think uh, my take on This tournament, I think, is going to be ultimately a net positive for gay rights in the region. And I say that because I was really surprised how much discussion on the topic was generated in places that it was not discussed before. So one example I'll give you is on local Qatari television, which we watched a pretty decent amount of while I was there. Um, Uh, you saw pundits really going out of their way to talking about uh, the German team having covered their mouths uh, during the the photo shoot of the of the first match, uh, which was their response to the voices of the gay community or or migrant worker community being silenced. And this was being discussed, and then uh, there was kind of this counter protest movement that sprung up. Uh, in in Qatar, which was very interesting, uh, where people began showing the Palestinian flags and covering their own mouths and referring to the hypocrisy of the West, right? So I found this very interesting because going into the tournament, I don't really remember hearing anything at all about Palestine. And then all of a sudden, you saw Palestinian flags everywhere in the stadium, and Palestinian flags were being kind of waved on TV, and people were covering their mouths. And that was a direct response to the attention that the gay rights and workers' rights issue had been getting from the media and from the players themselves. And so I think that just having had that conversation at all and having evoked that kind of response was probably, in, in, a, in a weird way, a step towards almost recognition and normalization that, hey, this is a thing and it exists and it's not, it's not something that uh, doesn't affect us or we need to be in denial of. Even if from a policy perspective, there was no real movement of the meter at this point in time. So that's, that's kind of my take on it, Taya. Is I think that it will ultimately be something that will be a legacy of the tournament in a positive way, the fact that it got, just got talked about. And in the past, like, I can't imagine on local Qatari TV, you would have had pundits, you know, talking about, you know, the issue of gay rights. I just don't think it would have happened. And so I think that will be um, something that will ultimately kind of uh, be positive coming from this. And that's something that FIFA and others will kind of look back on and say, hey, soccer has a means to create a new dialogue, to transcend politics, to transcend nations. And, and build topics of conversation around things where they wouldn't ordinarily exist.
I think there's other examples there. Um, go, go ahead, Tam. No, I just wanted to say, I mean, um, that may be true, right? But I, I don't think FIFA will have a good legacy in, in terms of silencing any conversation on social justice. So maybe in Qatar and then the region will be better, but certainly not for FIFA. Yeah, and I, but, but I, you know, for FIFA, it's, it's nice because you can move the tournament around, right? And so uh, for, for, for all of the, the, the blowback that you take from hosting in maybe Russia and Qatar in and around specific issues, you know, then you can move the tournament to Mexico and the US and Canada in 2026, and the narrative is going to be vastly different, right? And so I think that FIFA will have the advantage of being able to play the long game. Right. And I'm saying, you know, each moment is a moment, but at any point in time, the narrative can be shifted uh, just by making a decision about where the tournament is hosted and knowing how that decision will change the way that it's being covered uh, or the way that it's being perceived by the general public. Okay, Nick, we're going to stay here all morning, but we're going to first ask you to use your powers of summarization because there's something that is actually kind of floating out into the into the media into the people's minds which is the world cup effect um going for forward as, as uh, kind of football as a force for good uh, iran recently dismissed the morality police um that's a indirect yeah. response to to the protest in china where the ordinary chinese are seeing thousands of people laughing and cheering and not having masks and and watching sports has spurred some softening of the zero covid policy that those seem to be encouraging signs and, and ways in which all this visibility can can be for good. But it's also true that the oil-rich Arab countries have o- overtaken sports completely, and and that's that's not a, it, that's just a money story, um, a nation-building perhaps story. Uh, there's there's kind of some some rumblings that Saudi Arabia is going to bid to host a World Cup in 2030. So it's really a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's let's unpack it. And I think I'll address specifically, you know, kind of a a couple of those points. Uh, The Iran example is to me is probably a feel good story of the tournament. I don't know enough about the internal politics of Iran to say for sure that uh, the World Cup had a big effect on the decision to eliminate the morality police. But the timing of that decision being made so shortly after the USA-Iran game and only a week or so after the Iranian players had publicly called out their government after the Iran-England game where they basically blamed uh, the embarrassing defeat to the English uh, on the government, stating that it was really hard to concentrate on soccer when things back home were so messed up and that it was taking up so much of their emotional bandwidth. Um, That it feels very coincidental that uh, those things that were so impactful and kind of the bravery shown from those players, you know, led would not have had an impact on leading to that announcement that, that you just made about the elimination of the morality police. And so I think that is probably one of the feel good stories of the tournament. I think the China issue that that fascinates me because uh, apparently the way they've been dealing with in China is instead of showing all these maskless people having a great time in the crowd, they've, they've edited the broadcast to basically just show close-ups on the players and coaches on the bench uh, so as to avoid 
you know, that uh, to avoid so many people seeing like, hey, why are all these people hanging out in a huge mass, uh, not wearing masks? And I'm, I'm, I think this is super interesting because, and this gets a little bit to a point I, I want to make about the power of this event. Um, until a couple months prior to the tournament, Qatar had a pretty stringent policy around COVID entry, uh, it, around COVID in general, entry, contact tracing, sort of all that. And they made an explicit political decision to get rid of that for the tournament. And when they made that decision, I'm sure the last thing on their minds was, but how might this play out with the Chinese public, <laughs> right? Like, and I think that's, that's the power of, of the tournament right now, the, the extraordinary reach. I think if you looked at just in general, this is an event uh, you know, talking about uh, the World Cup and 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 how far and and how widespread and the number of unintended consequences that would come from an event like this. This is something that is so big, and the power of which is almost uncontrollable at this point. And I think if you compare it to tournaments of the past, and we talked about this on on a previous podcast today. With mobile technology and social media and streaming, the World Cup gets to a global audience instantaneously and at scale. And it's unbelievable. And so whether it's you're experiencing the, the unintended consequence of that, like China and COVID, or the intended consequence of that from the perspective of the Iranian players, like modifying a policy, or even from the perspective of the tournament host, right, which is you're trying to do nation building, now, all of a sudden, the World Cup offers you to do nation building on a global scale. Um, this, is not, this is not what it was before. And I think maybe one interesting example to us uh, on this pod is like Argentina 1978. In Argentina 1978 was a tournament. It was explicitly about, uh, it was a political exercise. It was the military government wanting to host the tournament in order to try and legitimize and sanitize the dictatorship. It was primarily for a domestic audience. And of course, those who had the opportunity to watch it around the world or read about it in print, if you could read and you, or you had access to television, um, you know, you would be able to see or read something like that. But in 1978, you know, when Argentina won the World Cup on home soil, you didn't see scenes on social media of hundreds of thousands of fans in Bangladeshi villages, you know, wearing Argentina jerseys and celebrating Argentina's goals that they were watching on the big screen as if it had been the, the Obelisco in Buenos Aires, you know, with, with locals celebrating and watching on the big screens. And I think that's the power of this event today. You can brand build globally as the host of this event, as a sponsor of this event, as a player in this event by having a connection with this event and that's only accelerating and so if you think about some of these other consequences like saudi like like iran and 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 with china and now your your issue about saudi well yeah i mean uh with everything that i just said you know what what is saudi going to do yeah, they're going to host the tournament, right? Of course they are. <laughs> with with all of that uh, that potential of 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 power and brand building uh, that could take place, and the examples that we see of being able to leverage 
you know, this to, to drive an impact uh, in other places, uh, it's going to be an irresistible uh, carrot that the Saudis and others are going to pursue. Nick, we, we've um, uh, run out of time, but I, I can't resist asking you one last question and asking you to sort of reduce it to a 45 second. We, we're now going to have a, a three country World Cup in the next, the next World Cup, which is yeah. Mexico, US, Canada, the North American World Cup. What, what political message do you expect to be the driving political message in this World Cup? Is it going to be immigration? What, what do you think is going to be the driving <laughs> political message in this world? And then this well, going back to that discussion I was having with Taya, uh, this tournament in 2026 is is explicitly commercial, and I think it's going to be because of the commercial nature of the tournament. It will be hard for political issues to break through because it's going to be like 11 simultaneous Super Bowls being played out throughout the United States, which, as we know, is the world's largest media market. And the media coverage will be unprecedented and it's going to be about the teams and it's going to be about the fans and all these local impacts. And so uh, in the end, uh, uh, it's going. we don't know what issues may be able to break through that clutter, but it will be tough. But I'll say this, similar to the rest of the countries that are hosting the tournament, at the end of 2026, I suspect even though it is not an explicitly government-initiated brand-building project of the United States, Mexico, and Canada to host this tournament, the big winner is going to be North American soft power because the visiting fan experience and kind of the world's entertainment capital is going to be so good. And so in 2022 or 2023 in January, as we kind of turn the page on the 2022 World Cup, uh, that's when we'll see the build up to 2026 begin. Whether immigration or anything else is going to be able to break through that extraordinary clutter, I don't know, but it's going to provide uh, ample material to discuss on future podcasts, I'm sure. And we, we can't wait to have you back. Nick Sprague, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you guys so much. Peter, it is impossible to try to summarize this great conversation with Nick. So I'll just hang on to the last thread, which was the next World Cup. He actually got me very excited about the 2026 championship. And, uh, and of course, in the, in the best sports venue in the world. But I'm also excited to see if there's a new uh, team on the table, which is the U.S., what they're going to have to you know, to play with. They're young. They're going to be in their early 20s in four years. Uh, what this is going to mean about integration between the U.S. and Mexico in particular, and who is going to be uh, kind of in power or, or in transition to power. So um, like like Nick mentioned, the, the people who negotiate these things are not usually the ones sitting in the front row of the bleachers. So I'm very curious about next uh, World Cup, even as we haven't even finished this one. I was. Uh, I, I completely agree that it's impossible to sort of summarize this. So I'm just gonna, like you, I'm gonna pick a random part of the conversation, which is, uh, I, I just have to say, I'm continue to be so disappointed by, uh, you know, the the hopes of the U.S. team, and that that were just, um, you know, after that first game, it just went downhill from there, and I I'm just not not sure I buy into Nick's hopeful prediction of seeing a U.S. team that is going to be 
so radically different next time than it was this time, which was, again, just disappointing in which everybody's hopes were dashed. And until we get a U.S. team that goes further, I fear that soccer or football is just will continue to be a relatively marginal sport played by young kids here and not followed uh, in the way baseball or basketball or American football is, or even hockey. So I had this bet going with a friend, um, and, and he said, if the U.S. wins the World Cup, we're, you're officially going to call it soccer. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Let's have that bet, <laughs> because obviously that's not going to happen. So um, we're definitely keep calling it football. Um, and, and like you, one thing to pick out, which is the same, um, I think both of you had, which is the future, right? Looking ahead at, at 2026. And for me, it's the social justice aspect of it, right? It's, he talked about, he was very, Nick was very convinced about the commercialization of the event and how, you know, we're not sure obviously what political messages will come out. But for me, there is no doubt that there will be political messages. I mean, this is the world is heading in that direction. Um, and in everything, everything is becoming more politicized. Um, and sports is no exception. So I'm sure there will be whatever is relevant after the presidential elections in the US in 2024, I'm sure will be will be a big part of the World Cup as well. So with that, with the very long episode, uh, which we hope you enjoyed as much as we did, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and we hope you do. Uh, sign up for our biweekly newsletter for analysis of global trends, and we will see you next time.